created live on Fireside. Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is the May Think Tank episode with our guests, Dr. Corey Davis, Dr. Jason Pina, and Beth Petro. Every week, we try to be here on Fireside um, and bring you great content. Um, it's the end of the semester. It is uh, that time when we're all kind of focusing on what's happening in our lives on our campuses. I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, Jason and Beth and Corey, I just spent some time with Corey in the in the green room. So I know he's here. I know he's uh, fired up and ready. But as usual, he's eating lunch. So he's turned his camera off. And so we don't need to see that. No one needs to see that. So um, I want to make everyone aware that Fireside has changed its format yet again. So um, if you're not sure what you're doing, don't touch anything until the show is over and then we will turn it off. Okay. Uh, But uh, thank you all for being here. What we try to do every month is bring the think tank together. I haven't seen everybody in one place in in a bit of time. It's been a busy semester for everybody. Uh, Jason Pina is here from uh, New York University. Uh, Beth Grampetro is here from Simmons University. And um, we have our friend Corey Davis is here from the beautiful, great state of Vermont. Um, and, uh, and so he, is, we are uh, really excited about today's show. Um, so let me tell you about my morning because I think it's important that everybody knows about my morning. Uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who has a dog, um, and, uh, my dog has been vomiting all morning, uh, in, she ate something. I don't know what she ate, but she ate something and she's been just purging all morning. So that's been fun. And my husband's home. So he's completely aggravated by this. Um, and so the dog has been vomiting. And then, uh, once we're done with the vomiting situation, I decide that it's now time for me to clean myself. So I go into the bathroom to shower and, um, we have these dog beds that are pretty light and my dog can kind of push them around and they sound like a big bean bag kind of getting across uh, across the house so I'm in the shower and I'm listening to a podcast because I'm addicted to podcasts and I have to be listening to something all the time and I hear and I kind of open up the the curtain and my dog's ass is in the bathroom pulling the dog bed into the bathroom while I'm showering and I'm like okay I'm just gonna shut this and ignore this finish my shower I open the, the shower curtain and the dog has moved the dog bed right up against the side of the tub and I have to find my way out and walk over. So I am completely focused right now on my dog who is literally sitting under my feet. So if I collapse in the middle of this podcast and I go flying off the screen, it's because my dog has tripped me and I have been knocked unconscious. Okay. So we're all good. (laughs) Jason, how are you? Tell everybody how you're doing. Can you hear me? Okay. I can. (laughs) I'm doing better than that. (laughs) <laughs> way better the last time i saw jason he was running the uh boston marathon i'm no, doing way better than that too <laughs> <laughs> fully recovered it was the 19 mile mark and my husband my daughter and i are, are like woo! we're tracking jason we knew where he's got that you know we had an idea who's gonna make it spy us at a specific time and we he, he saw us and he comes over and he says drive me home <laughs> I asked for a ride. 
life, then no, we don't do that. You have to finish. You're, <laughs> you're like the fifth person I asked for a ride. Everyone denied me a ride. <laughs> and how are you feeling now? I feel fine. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm officially retired <laughs> from running marathons. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we're... we're <laughs> We're, we're glad you're not officially retired from higher education. Truth tellers <laughs> yeah. like you, Jason. Well, I wish I was, but I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> you will be. You will be soon enough. You will be soon enough. Beth, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, no vomit in my day, which is, <laughs> which is always from, a plus. From a, from a person who manages a health and wellness center, that's actually... You know. I mean, there might be some happening downstairs, but I'm I'm not on the same floor as it if it's happening. So I'm I'm okay with it. Excellent. There are professionals down there who know how, what to do. <laughs> and Corey, Corey's home painting today. How's it going, Corey? It's going well and true to form as is tradition for the podcast. I am eating lunch. Yes. So Laura's right. No one wants to, I know, Jason, it just it just has to happen. I uh I hearken back to last year where we talked about like animal stories on our yes. campuses. Yes. Maybe there's a great nugget in the future of animals of higher ed. We talk about all these wackadoo stories of our pets oh or things God. of that nature, you know, Daisy causing you to flip over in your chair, Laura. Oh, maybe no. maybe there's something to <laughs> I remember there was one time we were we were doing a, an end of year. If you've ever worked in residence life, there's that end of year time where you literally go into every room just to make sure that everything's all set. And I was working at Boston University at the time, and we were in Warren Towers, 700 Commonwealth Avenue, and an RA comes like scream. And this is before the days where everybody had cell phones, so like you know you see something and you have literally have to like run off the floor and like run down to the office and this this RA came in, there's a snake, there's a snake, there's a giant snake. And so we go up and we go up to the room and, uh, and I'm not a snake person. I'm not anti-snake, but I don't seek out snakes. Okay. And the snake was in the room laying across the windowsill, looking like kind of sick. Like I'm not an expert on snakes, but it didn't look good. And so apparently the snake had been in the building somewhere, found its way into this room and was just kind of sunning itself on the windowsill, trying to get some, some uh, vitamin D, I guess. But uh, yes, we, there are plentiful animal stories. I'm sure that we can tell about uh, our campuses. So today we are shifting to something that's more urgent than pets and vomit, we are talking about money <laughs> and money in higher ed. And um, so it, we have a like a, an issue. Like, so the last two weeks I've been barraged with stories and I know you guys have seen them too. We saw the Nakubo story about the discounts uh, and the discount rates. Uh, every year Nakubo, which is the Business Officer Association, does a discount rate survey. And the survey showed this year is that the the average is 52% discount. So Jason, for those who are not higher ed folk, explain to people what a discount rate is and why it's why it's a thing. But explain what discount rate is and why maybe 52% and higher, we're going to talk about that in a second, is not a sustainable business model. Go. Sure. So, you know, I think the easiest analogy for folks to grasp is um, when you do retail shopping and the full price is $30 or the suggested retail price for some, an item is $30 and they tell you, well, it is on sale right now half off. So it's really $15. Yeah. 
Right. So your cost is $15. So if you discount rate is 50, 52%, you're going to be paying half the rack rate price for your tuition and fees for that particular year, which really comes from uh, your financial aid package, which um, the other misnomer for some folks is that that is a true discount. And it's usually a combination of grants, but also loans and uh, other things that are packaged into your uh, financial aid award that um, it may even seem like you're getting a discount of the 50%, 52%, but you end up paying back a percentage of that via your loans, which end up in the long term costing you more money because of the interest rates, blah, 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 blah. So I think that's the easiest way to kind of um, describe what the discount rate is uh, as it relates to, um, especially in private school. Public right. schools, some of them configure it a little bit differently because they'll bake in uh, the subsidy from the state, which has dwindled in many cases. Yeah. Uh, talk well, about probably yeah. every case, but every case, yeah, there more dramatically uh, recently coming right. out of COVID. And something you'll see, and we see this uh, on our campuses, that's oftentimes first-time students, so, so uh, new students will get a higher discount rate in their first year, and then it goes down slightly year by year, or it's it's uh, compensate with uh, some kind of academic achievement or something like that. So what Nakubo uh, said in the article or what the article said about the uh, in, inside higher ed and what the study from Nakubo said um, is that from between 2019, the academic year 2019 to 2020 to now, the first time undergraduate discount rate went from 51.2% to now 56.2%. Um, and then the overall undergraduate uh, discount rate went from 495 0.9% up to 50.9%. And so you might say, well, that's not a huge kind of uh, fluctuation, uh, maybe in the full uh, picture. But, um, you know, being that I worked at a college that closed, oftentimes people have asked me, well, why did it close? And I said, well, there was like a three-legged stool here. Uh, stool leg number one was about uh, the uh, deferred maintenance and that, you know, there was $40 million of deferred maintenance. And while we had some assistance in this, people don't like to pay for fixing the roof and re, you know, putting in irrigation or whatever it might mean to fix the campus. Um, uh, and that deferred maintenance also includes things like your internet and all of your back of the house uh, services, so whether it be your um, university information system, et cetera, those things all cost money to maintain. Um, so when you're talking about $40 million, that's a lot of money for a small college. Then the second leg is uh, the discount rate. Our discount rate at the time of our closure was about 62%. And that is, you know, if you have a $40,000 um, tuition uh, cost. Now you're really bringing in about, what is it, about $13,000 a year to $18,000 a year in terms of what you're actually bringing in per student. And yet that's just the cost of doing business is not being met. And then the third leg is about leadership, especially around the board. Um, but I think so. So this this discount rate continuing to go up. And so what you also see along the lines is other news reports have come out about giant leaps in tuition. So we're seeing big jumps in terms of what tuition dollars are so what so people see the headline the consumer the student the parent 
sees the headline, they get the email from the school because every school sends out this, we've adjusted our tuition, this is what we're planning on for next year, blah, blah, blah. And they see this big jump. And then there's also now this other story that they may not see is that their discount rates are also going up. And we are right now in a real valley as it goes to people's uh, belief in the return on investment in higher ed. They don't necessarily trust institutions for whatever reason. They don't trust the institution to provide for their student to have the best opportunity afterwards. We're competing against trade programs and vocational programs, which for, for many people is the right path. This is not me saying these are not the right path. But when you throw in there the complexity of now saying, we're charging more and we're adjusting our math so that, you know what, maybe our rack rate is, you know, let's say $75,000 a year, but what you're really paying is 52% less than that. It is no wonder in my mind that there's people out there who just don't believe in what we're offering. Am I being histrionic here? I'd like to hear from folks in terms of what they think. Let's go to Corey, then to Beth, and then back to Jason. Yeah, Laura, you know, I don't, <clears throat> I think we've seen this slow, slow creep year over year over year of what is the cost of doing business? I think you hit that right on the head. I remember Obama's scorecard, every institution was going to get a rank, et cetera, and finances being a part of that. And that to me really kind of stuck a, you know, a, a moment to say that, you know, the feds seem to be very um, much more interested and serious about um, not necessarily rankings, but in providing a return on investment that our students were making. Haven't heard a lot of talk about that the past couple of administrations, but I think it's just yet another symbol of costs keep going up. It, you know, state institutions are keep getting less and less money, though some institutions are seeing raises. Um, and then add in, let's say, our consumers, our students and their people saying like, well, like, what is the ROI? I don't know, you know, or it's too much or for what they want to do in their career and their lives for their livelihood. It's not the right choice for them. Compound that with, you know, less and less high school students coming to us. It's, uh, you know, going to be dog eat dog. I'm sure it was this year. I'm sure it's going to be next year. Oh, it's going to be miserable. Yeah. You know, and then people, you know, are people going to be fighting over admissions folks or students? You know, I'll give you $250 more to go to this place or this other institution. Yep. And are we going to get down to that level of minutia? I think also what will happen is institutions, let's say top 25 most wealthy institutions, they'll probably be fine is my educated guess. Then it'll leave everybody else to pick up, you know, where they're left off. It becomes the hunger games, you know, like that yeah. there's a tier at the top that's going to be just fine. Then they may, and we've talked about this before, they're going to have to dip into their enrollment pool to maybe pull some people up who may not have made the cut in the past. Um, but then the, then there's the hunger games down in the next. And level. You, I remember you talking about, you know, flagships taking away from satellite campuses. What does that mean yeah. for both institutions? How do you have a system where everyone wants to work together when the mothership or whatever is constantly taking a dozen students each year? That doesn't create a lot of ill will or create a lot of positive will amongst colleagues. No. And, and, uh, you know, we just saw today in the paper, 
um, and then Beth will get to you, is that uh, at West Virginia University, the president uh, gave a, a pretty blunt assessment as to what's going to be happening there and says they're going to have to start cutting programs. They're going to have to lean, lean things up. They know that their enrollment is going to go in the tank. Um, they've, they've looked at it forward and they're like, okay, we're gonna have to start cutting things. And so there's those programs and the state of West Virginia is not pumping money. in, even though it is the flagship and it is very well known, uh, for a variety of reasons, it's a very, it, it's a, it's got a great division one program. There's a lot of visibility of the program and it's just not going to get the money from the state legislature. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the states in a second, because I think both of these matters that where the, where the privates are hiking up tuition, but at the same time, increasing their discount rate. And the fact that the, the publics are losing their state funding and, um, their, their enrollments are going to continue to be a, a battle. This is, this is a holistic issue for all, for the entire academy. So Beth, what are your thoughts as you're thinking about these discount rates and how these uh, institutions keep kind of bumping up their, their tuition and the trust that we're losing in the, in the general public and the people who are supposed to be enrolling at our institutions? I think mostly about the issue you mentioned earlier about what people think the value is of yeah. attending college, a attending a traditional four-year institution, especially whether that's private or public, um, especially the residential experience. It feels, this is, I'm, you're bumming me out because <laughs> this feels like a very impossible cycle yeah. in that, you know, tuition is going up, the discount rate is going up to match along with it. Enrollment is going down. We are running, there are not as many people as, as there were who nope. are in the age group or who want to attend college for various reasons. You need to do all the work that you can do to give the people who do come the experience that they need and the experience they're expecting, which are not often, sometimes are not the same thing, but um, also, and this is, a, this is my lens that I'm looking from, like, we have students who need a lot of support yes. in various ways <clears throat> that I'm not saying like it's different and people, it is different, but it's also not something that wasn't present before. We, in some cases, just have a different awareness and a better awareness of what supporting students while being really looks like and really should look like. But the cycle we're in is the money to do those things to appropriately staff um, the departments on campus that are doing the sort of frontline work in those areas is yeah. getting cut. Yeah. Things are getting outsourced. Things are getting, staff is getting reduced. Um, so we're, we're trying to advertise this really wonderful, like high touch, super supportive experience at some schools. And then we're kneecapping those departments because yeah. the money is not there. Yep. yep. And I don't know. And, and I say and you're we know that the faculty is not going to be able to support the students in that way. This is not an anti-faculty statement. They have other right. responsibilities and other jobs. And uh, the other student affairs and student support services folks are going to get continue to get hammered in terms mm -hmm. of their ability to do things. Um, and we also know that those folks have a short shelf life in terms of uh, their retention as far as their staffing. I, I literally laugh when I look at my LinkedIn every day and I say, great opportunity at X university, come work with us. And it's always 
area manager, someone else in residence life. I mean, like, I don't know of a res life department right now that has been fully staffed for two years straight. I, I don't know one. I don't know one because they just don't, they can constantly are turning over people. And those are the folks who are getting uh, a lot of that, that kind of frontline issues, Beth. And I, I think you bring up a really good point. And I think oh, go ahead. One of the issues there is that we know that residents life staff in particular, and I would actually argue your health and counseling staff too, Absolutely. did the frontline yep. work during yep. the pandemic. They yep. were on campus. They were putting themselves at risk. They were doing all this work. They were not getting anything extra for it. Nope. Um, a lot of them left. A lot of them said, screw this. This sucked. No one appreciates me. Um, correctly, frankly, they yeah, felt yep. really like they were left out and not yep. and not supported. Yep. And I don't think that's wrong or bad. I think one of the interesting kind of things that has come from the pandemic has been this awareness that some of us really had shoved in our faces if we <clears throat> worked at a place that closed um, is like, oh, wait, my employer actually doesn't care about me. Like they do. So individual people there probably do. Maybe your team cares about you. You probably have a great relationship, but like the institution doesn't care about you as an individual. No. No. They are not going to save you. They're not your family. They, and I say this as a person that's like very happy with where I work. And I think that the institution I work for is doing a lot to be very supportive of employees. <clears throat> But I think you have to kind of hold both truths in your head at the same time that like, I can be really happy and pleased with what my employer is doing for me. And I also need to know that when the, when it comes down to it, <clears throat> that if they need to save money, they're going to save money. Yeah. And that Absolutely. might be, that might be me yeah. getting let go. Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> Pardon That's me. You. Oh. <laughs> and the, and the other thing, so the thing about that is like, a lot of people are really expecting more. <clears throat> Yeah. out of their employer or, right. or like expecting less, but sort of saying like, I'm not going to settle no. and I'm going to go do something. And th and that's great. Like know, know what you, you should be getting paid, know what you should be getting from an employer. But I also think we as like these institutions, higher ed institutions have always kind of banked on people doing this because they love it. Mm -hmm. And I think that still holds true. And there needs to be this meeting in the middle. And I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. Because yep. I think we don't have the money. We are never going to have the money that a like corporate entity has to really throw a lot of cool things at people financially. Right. And so I think there has to be some kind of medium place where like, yes, you should ask for a raise. Yes, you should set boundaries. But you also have to know that if you're choosing higher education as a profession, there's just going to be some stuff that are trade-offs. There's going to be things that a college or university cannot they're not going to give you a giant signing bonus. Like th these are just not things that our industry, maybe we should. I mean, I, I, I yeah, I mean, I can't say like <clears throat> this is the end and we, and we never change that, but that kind of change takes time. Yep. And I just, I think we're going to continue to see staff and probably faculty retention issues too, because those two things are kind of at odds with each other and it takes time for them to meet in the middle and places don't have money. Mm. So and I will stop rambling now so that poor Corey can talk. Corey, jump in and then I'm going to go over to Jason. 
Beth, you make me you make me think of a comment or a conversation Laura and I had, gosh, a couple of years ago at least, of so many institutions have propped up all kinds of basic needs, supports, and services because of a lack in the local community or a lack of wherever their students are coming from. And as we look ahead to monies and budget, I would wonder, you know, anything about belt tightening, there's going to be a difficult conversation of, well, it's going to be people or it's going to be these services right. that we've expanded to meet a need. But just as you talked about, we don't, you know, we don't have the money. You know, we've expanded to meet the need during the pandemic. So many institutions, understandably so and rightfully so, propped up testing centers and added staff and testing coordinators and then asked for volunteers. Sometimes it was voluntold to go help out um, with a variety of pandemic-related things. I imagine over the next few years, that'll really be a big question of what's the value? What's the ROI? We need to slim somewhere so we have these areas. And that's going to be really disappointing to so many people. And, I, and I'm going to put a pin in that. Corey, because I, I'm going to, I'm going to add that to the conversation to uh, that we're going to have about the state institutions. And when you lose some of these support, these uh, social services at the state level, and then the higher education institutions, but we'll talk about that in a second, because I'm about to ramble. Go, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with most of everything, what has been said, and, and what I've said uh, on campuses I've worked at the last decade plus is that Institutions don't have a goodwill bank, no. whether it's for individual employees or for departments or for services. And um, I know I sit in a privileged position to accept that as fact. Um, and it's just been shown to me too many times that that institutions will do um, what it needs to do or what it feels it needs to do to survive yep. uh, regardless. And sometimes these decisions are made by folks who don't face students and don't face the people who decisions impact, which so this disconnect between the true decision makers on some of the points that have just been made and the impact is so distant right. that it's very easy for folks to make these decisions and hide behind uh, the fiduciary responsibility and secret, secret, uh, secretness of uh, boards of trustees and what have you. So, right. uh, and in, in that West Virginia um, article, something that really stood out to me, I think it was a, a quote about being you know, the, not the canary in the coal mine, but the canary in coal country. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. You know, and I moved here from Appalachia, from University of Appalachia. And, you know, what what was in the West Virginia article resonated because we had been facing that in Ohio. Right. Um, exactly the same type of dynamics um, that, you know, these high school, the numbers are dwindling and then students are not willing necessarily like they were in the past to go to rural environments. I, I've been to... West Virginia's campus, um, and it's, it's a nice town, but it's not quite the metropolis that, you know, Boston or New York or other places are that are being coming, are more attractive to students in a dwindling market. Right. The other article I wanted to raise up today came out in the Chronicle, and I think the title of it was Ethical Poverty of Dorms for the Rich, and <laughs> it's a slightly different look on this issue, but the yeah. point in the article I wanted to raise up, because Jermaine to this conversation that it made a point of the 1950s and 60s, many of our campuses expanded because of demand for enrollment, right? Right, right. And, um, and their point was now the demand has not been the same, the growth has not been the same for many years, and they are um, enhancing residence halls at the point of this article, 
to attract a dwindling pool of students. Yep. But my reflection that I believe is germane to this conversation is um, that higher education is also an industry that's not good and nimble of shrinking. Um, it's decent at expanding when the resources are there and trying to figure out a way to build uh, the residence halls that were built across this country in the 1950s and 60s that now are leading to a lot of deferred maintenance that you mentioned earlier, Laura. Mm -hmm. um, but when the demand isn't there, because it's not as an industry, but as a loosely coupled industry with many individual, hundreds of individual campuses, thousands actually, um, that it doesn't contract right. to and, and, and respond to the demand. Right. So you have a lot of campuses that are still open that if this was a business per se and boards um, took their fiduciary responsibility like a board of a business does, many more of them would close down. Right. Um, and, or and, they would make decisions to close certain operating uh, sure. areas to say, you know what, this isn't, you know, the money is not here. The numbers aren't at, the, the math ain't mathing. Let's get rid of well, this part. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you um, may have a desire to be a, um, a, 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 a banana republic, but you have the resources to be an old navy. Yeah, and right. there's nothing Same wrong with something. either. Yeah. yeah, that's why I use it. Uh, <laughs> it's called the gap. Um, <laughs> I don't have an issue with either store. Yeah. But it's really hard when you work at Old Navy and you want to work at Banana Republic. Yeah. That's, um, that's also some of the issues, too. I mean, I've had the opportunity in my career to work at access institutions and elite institutions and Really, it's followed sort of where I was personally and professionally in my career, and I found value in both places. And when when I stopped finding value, it was really hard for me to be in a place that didn't fit me personally. And I think that decision makers, I've been at schools with tenured faculty, uh, board members, wanted the institution to be Banana Republic, but it clearly its mission was to be an Old Navy, and 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 they and many folks were proud of that, but that tension internally also causes institutions to make poor choices mm -hmm. that impact the viability of their services and who they're actually attracting. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's a hard conversation that is often not had on our campuses. Yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you for bringing that article up. That is an, a fascinating article. I'm going to put the link to all the articles we're talking about today in the show notes. So when you uh, play the replay, you'll have it all as well as my contact information. Um, and so, you know, let's shift a little bit. Uh, this, I think, is a good time for us to shift and look at some of the things that are happening from a state system level. I know, Corey, you're up in Vermont. They're trying to consolidate the state institutions up there. There's a bit of a timeline there. They're also uh, had a situation where the, the person they hired to take this uh, project on um, has resigned um, because of some of these library. There was a whole issue around do we have libraries and we do we move library all online and all of that. And so there was a big, big pushback, but he's left. Um, what's happening in New Hampshire? Same idea. They're trying to consolidate a bunch of institutions under the UNH flagship and really differentiate what are these institutions between Granite State and the University of New Hampshire at Manchester? What does this all look like? So they're trying to do some things. But then we see in Connecticut um, that the state is just not going to, they're saying we can't keep funding the state system the way we've been sent as we've been doing this. And there's some risk that there's not only going to be staffing and faculty cuts, but some campuses 
are at the risk of being closed. Um, and so as we look at this, and is there, I'm wondering about higher education leadership, because I also think you know, there's that old adage, we keep doing things the same way and we come up short or we keep making the same mistakes again. I mean, this is foolish. I feel like leadership is not being bold enough to make real change happen. Is real change cutting certain programs or an athletic program or what are we doing to try and actually harness what we're to get to Jason's analogy about being, are you a, are you an old Navy versus a banana Republic? How do you embrace that old Navy hood to be able to actually do the business and back to uh, something we were talking about earlier is that we have to provide these social services. Like it's like, when are we going to prioritize the services that we need versus some of these kind of uh, affinity programs that people want to have and say, you know, as I, as I compare these campuses, I want athletics. Okay. Well, if you want athletics, here's some things. Um, if I want good mental health counseling, I want these things. I want that to be across the board. Um, and I, I do want to tack on this, this consideration in addition to the higher ed institutions, not getting the funding from the state other social services are being cut by the state. So whether that be uh, folks who come and do home visits uh, with their uh, Department of Social Services, folks who are checking in on, on uh, young people who are at risk, or even elder care where people don't have enough food in the house, um, those things all run back. If you think about environment, if you think about the students and the environment that they're growing up in, and if they don't have access to consistent housing, consistent food, and consistent care in their household, and they themselves are shouldering the burden or something, and now you go on to their college campus, a lot of these students are using either the housing on campus or food banks, counseling, things of that nature, because it's not being offered off campus. And so when the, when the state is no longer supporting some of these social services in the neighborhoods, and then they're not supporting the campus's budget, the students who are truly in need are not getting what they need. What, they're not getting that return on investment because they're just not able to function in that academic environment in the best way. And my, I, I would like your thoughts on, on a few things here. What's going through your head? Are, is leadership just asking for all the wrong money for all the wrong reasons? Should leadership be really strategizing about what does the future of higher ed look like state by state, type of institution by type of institution? And do we have leaders and, or should we have leaders um, in our states who are actually asking for, look, if you're not going to provide us with the money we need, you need to start to also look at the social services that are in the state across the board, because we've been shouldering a burden here that you're not putting the money together for. Uh, anyone want to start or I'm going to just throw it to Corey? <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to share a couple of thoughts. Um, Go ahead. You know, unfortunately, um, voters have taught our politicians, probably in every state, that um, cutting higher ed does not actually lose you votes. Nope. So when you have uh, ultimately um, legislation, le legislators who are responsible for passing these budgets and governors 
responsible for implementing and in some cases constructing them in the first place. Um, you know, they have viewed and most of the state pro, uh, places I've been as this is a place to go to cut, to redistribute funding to other areas that have uh, impact on votes or impact on the agenda that, um, that that particular governor or what have you has. So, um, you know, so what does is the closure and elimination of jobs. So I'll give you one quick example. In Ohio, which is the last public uh, system I was part of, um, there's 14 four-year institutions in Ohio. Ohio State is a big, bad one in the state. Yep. A whole bunch. Of, but each one of those 14 also has a set of regional branch campuses right. that were also started in the 50s and 60s. Actually, I believe it was the 60s. Because a governor said to the state, you will be with every citizen in Ohio will be within, I forgot what it was, 10 minutes, 20 minutes of a university. You can pivot out of the coal industry, out of mining, what have yep. you, to this in, to and get a higher education. So the school I was part of, we had five branch campus in addition to our main campus. None of the branch campuses even broke even anywhere close to it. Yeah. And um, they did not have the enrollments. And we should have less, Ohio should have way less than 14 institutions. But no president, no board, no chancellor of higher ed wants to utter those words in Columbus, in the capital, because you have representatives of those communities who, you know, in some of those communities, it's the, the biggest employer. Right. Uh, and so the idea that you would close it because there was not, you, you have too much supply for the demand is really a non-starter. So they get, you know, kind of, you know, death by a thousand cuts, and I'm not sure that any of them will actually quote unquote die. And then the other part of it, and I had a conversation with a colleague that works at a Florida State University campus, and you know, they were telling me as it relates to the DEI stuff, and it was articles around Maspatan about how none of the presidents spoke out. Yeah. And on their particular campus, the discussion really was around, hey, if I speak out, uh, um, I'm going to be replaced. And I'm going to be replaced by somebody who actually will be in favor of the directions going in. So the choice was consciously made behind the scenes that they won't speak out because they can still make a lot of positive inroads uh, on the campus if they're in place. So there's also maybe a little bit of a lack of sophistication in in some parts of higher ed or critics of higher ed that – when you have conservative boards or you're in a state that is a particular political leaning to speak out means you will be replaced by somebody who right. won't speak out, will speak in favor. And are we trying to play a long game, which is not viewable on a day in and day out basis uh, to students, to faculty. And, and, and sometimes the faculty and students then turn on the president mm. uh, and the president can't defend themselves, right? They just, right. they go down in flames and are replaced right. by someone that, they wish they didn't, you know, wasn't being replaced by. So I, I hate to say, well, it's just all complicated, but it, it is. Yeah. And, you know, and when you start meeting, um, I had a, I had a graduate student ask me Monday night about uh, trustees. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming none of the trustees I currently work with or have in the past are going to listen to this, but I'll say it. I could probably count on one hand how many trustees I ever would voluntarily socialize with. Yeah. Like I'm not down with them politically. Most of them don't actually care about students. They see university that they're serving as a piggy bank or a place to do, you know, their pet project or 
they gave a they gave millions to their pet project and they want to keep an eye on it. Yep. Their fiduciary responsibility isn't necessarily to the student experiences and the services and what have you, uh, unless they're actually cornered and um, that and figuring out a way to kind of get out of that. Right. That's been my lived right. experience. I hope that not every board across the country is full of those, but um, they tend to skew that way because of and the requirements of being a board member. Well, last week we had Rick McLennan on, who was the former president at the University of Central Idaho and or Central Idaho uh, College, excuse me. And it's a community college up in, in Idaho. And he was summarily let go. And right now they're on the verge of losing their accreditation because they've got a board of trustees that's an elected board. That's a nuance of Idaho. But it's an elected board of trustees that are literally having conversations about they're bringing QAnon conspiracy theories to the board meetings and, you know, all of this. And so you have people who not only are not qualified to look at education, but they're not qualified to have a, a reasonable conversation about, you know, how much, you know, about Bud Light cans. Okay. So, I mean, this is not the kind of people that are, are looking at higher education through a, a, a lens of a good actor. Okay, this is a bad actor, and that's all they care about. And that that adds a nuance to the public institutions is that when we're looking at these boards of trustees and the people who are actually funding and putting out, you know, what are should be the funding priorities from a fiduciary health standpoint, are there good actors? Are they bad actors? Are they are they good actors who just aren't super good at their job? I mean, there's a lot of nuance there with these public institutions. Um, but to Jason's point, it has consistently gone down, down, down in terms of what the what the um, governor, what the legislature is going to be allocating towards these campuses. And do you have a state like Ohio that has got way more campuses than they need to break even? You know, Pennsylvania has been trying to even things out Georgia years ago was at the forefront of this to try to consolidate these campuses and all that. But I think you're in a really tough spot. I was listening to a story about, of all people, Dave Chappelle, who lives in Ohio, who lives in his hometown in Ohio, where, um, you're gonna have to help me, Jay, but the, uh, the, the small campus that was he in lives, the town. Oh, he lives in Yellow Springs, Ohio, um, yeah. which is, uh, it's the closest school, Bowling Green, maybe? No, it was uh, Leon. It's Antioch, isn't Antioch, it? Antioch. Oh, Antioch. That's right. That's and, right. And his father was a faculty member there. And Antioch now has like 200 <clears throat> kids. Like it's 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 teeny tiny. And the point is, like he's tried to kind of clean up the town and and take the role that the college used to have when it was super robust and and thriving. And that's a that's a private school. But one of the things that resonated in this story with me is that his um, town is this little blue dot in a very red community. And one of the things that a lot of these public institutions share in um, some of these red states is it's the blue dot in the red state. And that is not a way for you to be gaining trust to either A, send a child there because people are going to be like, I don't know if I want to send my kid there because it's going to change who they are. Okay. Which, which is, you know, that that's a whole other conversation, but it's a real one. And then number two, when you look at 
the the legislature saying we're not going to send money to that blue dot town it's to the blue dot town that the money's not going to it's not necessarily to the university in terms of how people see it and how the voters see it like why should blacksburg keep getting some money when the rest of the state needs needs other things and to your point jay i think that we are in a we are in a spiral because we are not speaking on this level of, look, we don't want to create a brain drain in fill in the blank state. When we look at Florida, West Virginia, Texas, all these places where we are going down, 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 we can't get doctors to go there. We can't get nurses to go there. We can't get people to actually do the jobs that we need. We can't get engineers to go there because they're like, why should I go there? This isn't a place that's going to make me in a, in a situation where I'm going to feel like I can thrive with me and my family. So we have to, we have to adjust, I think, in some ways, how our university leaders are talking to our um, legislatures. And if, and if I was coaching a president of a university in a state where there is this push-pull, I'd say, I need to know something. Not only how well are you working with your trustees, but how well are you actually communicating with the people who are putting the money in to make your budget work? When we were talking earlier, Corey was talking about now he's at a private school, but Senator Leahy, who's on his like, you know, his retirement tour, just gave his institution like $10 million. And that's because the president, who's new, had had a good got out there and said let's show you what what we can do with this money to help impact the students who go here this is this is too important and we are we can't just keep talking about things in the same kind of circular argument of this is how we have to do things and and i would like to see some campuses start to really reevaluate what's the role of this campus what does this campus have to be and does this campus actually have to survive in a 14 campus state like Ohio? I don't want to see things get shut down because I know what that means and I know how that feels, but you really have to reevaluate what the campuses are and what's the mission. Laura, before you kick it to somebody else, can I just point out a couple of words that um, I have a problem with that you keep using? Yeah. So I, I, think, um, <clears throat> I think mindset is important. You keep saying we have to. Yeah. Um, we need to, <clears throat> excuse me. And I think part of the problem is um, a lot of people don't feel that way. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. It's more of a should. Yeah. And, you know, it's like this, uh, this, this piece of um, people willing to kick the can down the road, mm -hmm. uh, whether it is politicians or senior leaders at an institution. Right. Yeah. You know, again, within the last couple of weeks, they took the survey of uh, university presidents and now it's officially averaging under six years. I think it's 5.9 years now. So, you know, when you have someone that may be at the tail end of the career or knows they're going to do two or three of these presidencies, uh, um, you know, it, it does take a powerful special leader mm -hmm. to do the right thing all the time. And a lot of folks actually don't do that. No. <laughs> uh, right. And, um, and, and they should, and boards should hire folks that will make tough decisions. And people should realize that when you are a change agent at a level that you just kind of unpacked, you're likely going to lose your job 
and you're likely not the right or you're likely not the right leader to then rebuild or be or be on a new plateau, right? It's yeah. really hard to be someone who is that type of change agent that also gets joy out of maintaining uh, excellence, for example. Um, there's different yeah. types of leaders. So yeah. I keep saying should, and I stop my own people when they, we have to do X, Y, and Z. We don't have to do. And one of my mentors wait. early in my career said to me, he sat me down when I was a dean of students and said, what do we have to do in student affairs? And I would name things like, oh, we need RAs or we need this, we need that. And like, no, uh, 504, we need to do something around disability. We need to do, we need to have some kind of accountability for misbehavior because of Title IX and some other things. But the rest of it really is optional. And the people who don't care about our profession really feel it's optional, uh, which is part of what we're unpacking here. Yeah, no, I appreciate you calling me out on that, but you're absolutely right. Word choice matters. And, uh, you know, it, it, I think where I get amped up is that we've all seen the lack of, the lack of political will and leadership will and say, why, why is it so hard to care? <laughs> well, we know why it's hard to care because it's hard. Um, and uh, so I want to hear from Beth or Corey um, on this, but I do want to spend a little bit of time towards the end of the show today talking about how do we bring trust back in our brand. Um, because I think in both of these cases, both in the in the discount rate and the tuition hikes on the on the private side, and then on the uh, what's the, what are we seeing at the at the states in terms of all of the the cuts and the panic? Um, how do we bring back the trust when we need we need trust in our in our uh, field uh, in higher ed to make sure that we we are here in a couple of generations, uh, if not longer. Um, so Corey and, and Beth, their thoughts on where we're at right now with the conversation, or if you want to jump to the next, the next piece about trust. Laura, I, what, what comes to my mind and, and it was Jason's example of talking about, um, higher ed in Ohio, most recently before Vermont, I was in Maine, which has seven state campuses, state university campuses for a population just around 1.5 million. I don't need to tell you all the math doesn't add up. Yeah. Um, and I've worked for the flagship now twice. Prior to that, I worked for the university system in New Hampshire and have worked for the state university system in Mass. And so many states um, have a complementary university system and state college university system. I think maybe Rhode Island is the New England um, state that I can't think of. No, they are um, Rhode Island College. Right, right, right. But like, it's you know, think tiny, of things. it's a tiny state, so you get one of each, but yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think about, you know, Connecticut, what's the Yukon system going to yes. do? Then yes. what, what are the state university systems going to do? And Laura, to call your earlier question of what are you seeing institutions doing? I think back four or five, maybe eight years ago now for the University of Maine systems, um, single accreditation model that I think has some positives within that to try to bring folks closer together um, and provide, you know, articulation agreements and credit sharing between the systems. Yeah. I do think also here in Vermont for the state university system, which is distinct from the University of Vermont, um, I, I, I understand the goal, but, you know, like the, the former president, now former president of Vermont State University took a lot of flack in trying to carry that water and make those things happen and make those tough decisions. Um, you know, and so I think that's likely the right angle to continue to go in. You know, when is UMass's time? 
when are, you know, when's the time for I'm a Salem State University grad? When is the time for the state university systems in Mass and then UConn? Uh, well, and, and the states in Connecticut. Um, so I think there are examples out there and maybe it's just a mad, crazy rush to try to figure out something that'll work yeah. before it's, you know, we have to close this campus of 900 people that, you know, to, to Jason's, Jason's example as well in the state of Maine, like entire communities have worked and continue to work there with no other industry. You're not going to say go to scenic Machias, Maine. There's not a booming metropolis there. Um, it's the university. There's a Dunkin' Donuts. And I think there are two stoplights, one of which blinks, um, you know, and, and how is that both a political calculation and a higher ed calculation? Yep, absolutely. And that, and that I think lends itself to the trust issue too. When you close the campus, why would the, why would people in the state trust this institution uh, to trust the whole system to say, well, now you've left this, this community, this community, this community to be dead communities. We have nothing going on. We have no employer. We have nothing to do. So that's, that's absolutely relevant. And, um, but I do want to highlight something, what you've talked about with that, with the um, accredited, sorry, the articulation agreements, that, that is something that still not every state has, that you have clear articulation agreements between uh, uh, campus to campus to campus. And these students have to jump through fiery hoops to just get that degree done, um, which, is, which is our fault. When, we're, when our processes are so convoluted that it gets in the way of the students actually completing, that that's on us. Beth, what are your thoughts right now? Thinking about like rebuilding trust or gaining trust in the first place. So I think in some ways there are certainly people out in our population that don't trust higher ed, period. No. It's really hard for me to think this through because I am like, you know, all the jokes in the conservative media about coastal elites, like mm -hmm. Listen, I work in Boston. I've worked in higher education my entire life. I'm from Massachusetts originally. Like, I don't, I learn stuff about just the perspective of people in all different parts of the country. And I go, wow, like, it just never, not that it never well, occurred to me, well, but like, it's very different. This, to all who are watching this, uh, either live or on the replay, I want you to zoom in on Beth and, and she is the quintessential. And that's me, very coastal elite. Okay, but like, ahead. truly, <laughs> truly, the, I think of this a lot because I am married to someone who works outside of higher education and I will come home and I will tell a story about something that's going on, something that's important. And he just looks at me and he's like, what? Because we forget that like we have a really, we within student affairs, especially, but I think higher education as a field, we have an understanding of like how things work and what's important on our campuses and all these other things. And I think we overestimate the degree to which people outside of our field understand it or care about mm -hmm. any of it, right? And it's hilarious sometimes, but it's also not funny because this is why I think Jason made such a great point earlier about like the voters don't like stick it to our legislators when they cut higher ed because the voters have not been told and have not been like brought into the conversation about why all this matters. I also think of it, and this is kind of an old debate, but it's still raging, I feel like, is this idea that like, well, it's also expensive because of administrative bloat, yes. which is a term I hate. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I get why that term exists because people don't like 
the average person out there, and I've, I feel bad. I am sounding like an elite because I'm acting like, a, you know, your average person out there doesn't understand how a college works. And I don't mean that. I think that people get it. You've been to a college. Maybe you visited one. Maybe your kid goes to one. You have some understanding of it. But I think that maybe we, part of it is, are we doing a good job explaining why we need to have the people and the departments and the things we have? Yep. I joke with my husband all the time. I'm like, are our jobs fake? Right. And they're not, but like, I, you know, I'm just like, like, think about it. If you were like a plumber, like you could really just be like, I'm a plumber. And people would be like, I understand generally what you do Yeah. when people are like, Beth, what do you do? I truly just, am like, God, and it's not fake, but it's very hard to explain to people it's hard to like talk about what I do on a day-to-day basis and have people outside of my field be like, yes, that sounds real. And like a reasonable thing that someone should get paid money to do for sure. Right. And so I don't know where I'm going with all this, except to say, (laughs) I think that I understand why it's easy or easier, not always easy. It's easier to say to, to a group of voters in a municipality, Hey, we need to vote carefully, you know, or in a state, we need to vote carefully around X thing because it's going to impact K through 12 education, which mm-hmm. is compulsory in our country. And we care about the kids and we absolutely should. You get to higher ed and it gets fuzzy because there's mm-hmm. still, I think, this feeling amongst some that it's not necessary, that it is snobbish, that it is not for me. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not for some people. I think there are lots of people for whom like that's not the path they take and that's okay. Um but I think that there's a disconnect somewhere about the the contributions that higher education makes to society or should be able to make to society or should try to make. And then also the stuff we were talking about earlier about the things that our society should be doing to support each other and support right. our communities that we are not doing and that start falling onto colleges to do with that age group at least or falling on the k through 12 system to do with those kids and it's just like it's all kind of like i I defer to what jason said before about like i hate to just say it's complicated but it is it's all tangled up and it's really hard to build trust when there's this fundamental like thing missing of even saying hey this is important and even if you because this happens with k through 12 school too even if you don't have a kid in the school system, it should be important to you. Right, right. The funding of it should be important to you. And the entire student debt situation also contributes to this lack of trust. Right. And the and I absolutely agree with you. And I think that the student debt situation has only amplified how people yes. trust or don't trust higher education. And it's a very complicated to use Jason's. Jason has won the term today. It's complicated. It's a complicated feeling because people feel a certain way about student debt relief from their own perspective. Okay, so the person saddled with the debt, the person who doesn't have the debt but doesn't understand why someone needs to have it have it uh, forgiven, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all kinds of different angles here, um, and so it's super important. Um, I am going to do a little. Oh, go ahead, Jason. You're on mute. Beth, Beth's point about being coastal elite really resonated um, <laughs> as one as well. But um, it reminded me when I lived in Ohio and having a chance to sit down and listen 
to the other. I won't get into the topics. They range from gun control to abortion to any all the hot topics. And being willing to sit and listen to folks, like the roots of the belief systems that others held was something I never really did until I was surrounded by them, so to speak. And it was really enlightening to me of um, how do you sit with that? How do you sit with folks and be willing to be educated to educate? Yep. And maybe that to your earlier question is, is one of the answers is that if we're, if enough of us have to be willing to sit in discomfort with the other, with the other to understand why do they have, whether well, it's their version to higher ed or they're making the financial choices they're making, the list goes on and on. Um, that's really hard. My, my wife and I, who Laura, you know very well, uh, we talk about this all the time. Cause I'm, I'm willing to sit in that discomfort and, and my wife won't. Um, she's like, I, you know, I, I have so many years on earth. I want to spend it with the people that I enjoy spending time with. And I feel like if you have the capacity, if you're a listener, you have that capacity leaning into that personal discomfort um, may give you an opportunity to find a path forward to educate. And, um, and it is, it is not easy. I'm not just saying, Hey, everyone should just go ahead and do it. But um, it, it has a cost that many of us are not willing to pay um, mm-hmm. because our lives are just so precious to us and our time is precious. So I, I totally get that. So I appreciate Beth sharing that point. Yeah, and I appreciate that comment. And I, and I will say, if you want to have training wheels and start those conversations, some of the people you can actually start those conversations with, those uncomfortable ones, are, are those very same people we were talking about earlier who may be working on your campus but living in the – and who are then local to the community, have been part of it for a long time. And while they work on your campus, they may not share maybe some of your values and, and outlooks in terms of politics. Um, but they understand the campus. So you have a common ground and there is an opportunity to start that conversation and then maybe go deeper with some folks who you don't um, have uh, that common ground with in terms of uh, affiliation with the institution. Um, I'm gonna do a couple of promotions for some upcoming shows and then I'm gonna give each of you an opportunity to uh, do one quick kind of like if if you, uh, you know, just kind of say what you're joyful for, for the end of the school year to sign us out. So I want to do a little joyful end of the year kind of thing. And it can be even like your, your, uh, your, I don't know who your commencement speaker is, but some of you might be looking forward to that, even though, you know, Jason, you had Taylor Swift last year, so it's going to be hard to, to hard to beat that. Um, so coming up, uh, we have a three part series, uh, between the, um, May and June with the good folks from Beyond Transfer. Um, they have done three publications, one uh, focusing on financial dis- uh, disincentives uh, for transfer students, um, the other around uh, student affordability in the transfer process, and the third one is about accreditation in the transfer process. So we're gonna be having people who wrote the white papers for, uh, for Beyond Transfer on uh, over the course of uh, several shows, one will be on May 14th, the other on May 17th, and the other on June 1st. So looking forward to those. And then we're going to have our final show of season two, which is on uh, June the 7th, which will also be a think tank episode. And it'll be looking back at the entire school year, seeing how we're doing and uh, really excited about that. So uh, let's go, uh, Corey, to Beth, to Jason. Um, tell us a shout out quickie in terms of what are you joyful about for the end of the school year? Go, go Corey. 
Yeah, Champlain's a small enough, close enough community where we have so many opportunities to come together um, as like an, a group of employees. So I'm really looking forward to, we've already had a couple of gatherings and we've got three or four already on the books from now till Independence Day. Put on that name tag and eat some chicken dinners. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Beth, you're up. <laughs> um, this is my first like end of the school year at my institution because I just started here in August and we are going to be the first campus to have our commencement at the MGM Music Hall in Fenway which is like a pretty new venue so I am pumped for that because (laughs) that's just cool and I don't have to go to the pavilion in the seaport which for the Boston folks you know the seaport is fun but it's far it's far um, I'm just yeah and and so I'm I'm selfishly pleased with this indoor venue right here in my work neighborhood I'm and I think the graduates are going and their families are going to have a really lovely time there. So I think it'll be great. I'm, I'm jealous and I would like to see it. Okay, Jason, you're up. Well, while we do not have uh, Taylor Swift coming back, which is good for me because I don't know any of her music, but I did have a lovely conversation with her. She thought it was funny that I knew nothing about her. I mean, I know she's famous. I was like, you're like the Michael Jackson of people today. She thought that was pretty funny. She is kind of, I think. Um, you know, for, for me, um, my current boss is going to assume the presidency on July 1st. Yes. So going through that transition, um, first woman president here and all that stuff's been pretty cool to witness. And I've gone through these a few times and they haven't personally worked out for me very well. So this one will work out for me very well. So I'm glad that's happening because, uh, you, you know, because I don't want to I don't want to move. So I'm looking forward to all that. <laughs> And we're excited for that. And we'll be looking for your LinkedIn updates saying, we have a great opportunity. <laughs> yeah, we have a great. I, I, um, I usually have about 40 to 50 great opportunities in student affairs here. <laughs> We're like about our unemployment rate. Our opening rate is about 8%. Like I can't get go. it down lower than that. Well, we're well, we're hoping that you can get it down into like, you know, Biden-Harris administration numbers under, <laughs> under, under 3% down there. Okay. You're crazy. <laughs> So all our listeners know that. That's right. That's right. There's all there is to it. So speaking of this, you've been listening to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is a live audio broadcast aired and recorded on the Fireside platform. I am your host, Dr. Laura DeVoe, and I thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up in the Academy, on the Substack platform. Follow me here on Fireside, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, and post. I am also on now on the new platform post, uh, and you can find my information uh, in the show notes. Uh, you can listen to replays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio Podcasts. So now, thank you for being here, and get out there and learn something, everybody. Have a great commencement season. <laughs> <laughs>